What's up, everyone? My name is Philip Hensler. And I'm Adam Richman. And we're your co-hosts for today's PATHS Technology Committee podcast. We started this podcast to initiate a conversation with the members of the athletic training community in Pennsylvania in the hopes that we can engage and foster relationships in the state, explore emerging settings, and provide a unique perspective into the day in the life of an athletic trainer. <laughs> Today, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Paula Tarosi, for taking the time out of her busy schedule to come talk with us on the PATS podcast. Paula comes from Westchester University, where she received her bachelor's. She uh, got her master's at Michigan and one at University of Pittsburgh and her doctorate from the University of Virginia. She's an NATA Hall of Famer. She was a founding uh, chairperson and program director for the Duquesne University Department of Athletic Training, where we met. And she now directs the pre-medical and health professions program at Duquesne. She has been involved in every level of athletic training leadership as a licensed athletic trainer. She's been an athletic trainer for as long as I've been alive. And she is a friend and mentor to many. Paula, thank you so much for coming and spending your morning with us. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Um, I do have two minor corrections. Actually, I... Um, oh, my. I went to Westchester State College, so it was before it became a university. Yeah. And wow. Was Michigan State, the actual real university in the state of Michigan, not that other school down the road. So. <laughs> <laughs> Those are important awesome. details. They are. <laughs> so, Paula, talk to us. Um, Let's start back uh, early on in your career. What was your first job as an athletic trainer? Um, before I became certified, I actually was in my high school. Um, my two coaches, there were only two, um, they, I was an, a three-sport athlete, and we had, uh, during basketball season, which wasn't my strength, um, I realized that we had nobody providing care for our students in the high school at Edgewood which no longer exists. It's now part of Woodland Hills. Um, I actually started my athletic training career there. I got a Kramer handbook, um, which was how athletic trainers were trained back in the day. And this was 1977. Um, I actually created my own little athletic training room. I stole ice from the uh, home ec room. I stole a table from the coach's office and I got a first aid kit, a Kramer first aid kit. So that actually was my first experience um, where I took care of the guys team um, while I also was still playing. And then in my senior year, I only played two sports instead of three so that I could uh, be the athletic trainer for both basketball teams. That's awesome. So, so you, you, you treated the, the guys team. Can you like just expand on that? Like what kind of stuff were you doing? Like, what did you feel comfortable with? Were you taping ankles? Like, Right, well, it was mostly first aid because I was already trained in first aid because I was a Girl Scout. Um, Perfect. So a lot of it was about the first aid, but then I read in the Kramer first aider uh, manual about how to tape ankles and the use of heat. Um, so they bought me a little hydroculator unit. No way. They bought me some tape and I basically followed the book. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. <laughs> Then you, you had some education, uh, actual education outside of just the uh, handbook. Um, what was your, your first you know, certified athletic trainer job? 
Okay, so my first certified job was when I was in graduate school at Michigan State. Um, I was a GA for football and gymnastics um, my first year. And then my second year, I was the head athletic trainer at East Lansing High School. Um, I was the first woman in the state of Michigan to work high school football. Um, so I had my own room, I had my own facility. Um, and that year, our football team actually went to the state championship at the Silver Dome. And because I was one of the few women working football, um, I actually had that first experience of taping um, my athletes in the middle of the locker room off a, um, a whirlpool tub in the down, downstairs of the Silver Dome. Um, unfortunately, we lost that game, but um, so cool. Coach Smith made me sit right next to him in the front of the bus whenever we traveled because I was the only woman mm -hmm. um, and the only woman they had ever worked with at, for football. So um, it was a big deal. And I know Clint Thompson, who was my mentor for Michigan State and our head athletic trainer there, um, he was very proud of the fact that I was the first woman to work football in the state of Michigan. Yeah, that's yeah, huge. So that that is that is huge, and and I know we were talking a little bit offline about the you know being the first female in certain situations, and and you know the the introduction of Title Nine and and, and those um, types of things. Can you can you just talk about your experience as as a young professional, as a female, what that struggle was like, and and you know how you overcame some of those obstacles, and you know you know how, where where did we start, and and how did we get to where we are now? Um, I'll try to condense it down. Um, so <laughs> when I was looking at colleges, I really was looking to be a French English major. Um, but I have this gift or a calling, if you will, for athletic training. So I was looking at schools that were maybe I could do a little volunteer work along those lines. And I, I applied to, uh, or I actually contacted the athletic trainers at Pitt and at Penn State because I was a, a Pittsburgh girl. Um, and at that time, they weren't accepting women. Um, at all into their athletic training programs, and I oh, could wow. internship uh, through them, but they weren't accepting women at the time. So Larry Cooper and I would have been contemporaries, um, but but um, and they weren't taking women into their program. So I'm sorry, Paul, I, what what year was that, Paula? 1978. 1978. Okay. okay. So in 1978, then um, I decided to go to Westchester State College at the time. And I started out as a French and English major, but then I found out that what I was doing in high school actually had a name yeah. uh, and that I could actually study it at uh, Westchester. And so at that point, um, I started to um, embed myself in with the upperclassmen at Westchester so I could get my feet in the door early. Um, and it worked to my advantage. Um, at that time though, um, women were, at Westchester, at least, uh, Phil Donnelly, Joe Godek, and Brad Taylor, our mentors there, were very open to allowing women to do just about everything. Yeah. But at that time, we had to all enter through a locker room. So I had to enter through the women's locker room. The guys entered through the men's locker room, and we were stuck in the middle of two locker rooms in a facility. Um, in that, at that time, you know, to get ahead and to become successful in athletic training and, and promote yourself, um, there was a sense among those of us uh, in that first and a half generation, I wouldn't say we were the first generation of women, but we were the first and a half, yeah. um, that we had to be better than the guys if we wanted to even have an even shot at it. So in my uh, sophomore year, I was admitted to the program. Um, it was a competitive process, and I was fortunate enough to be placed on campus. 
and in my um, in my junior year, I had all male teams, which was very unusual. Um, but that also meant I had to be on top of my game, and I had to be better um, than my I wouldn't say I was better than them, but I had to be equal, if not better, than my male um, counterparts to be selected for those roles. Um, so it it caused you to really work hard at what you needed to get and to move ahead. Um, traveling, for example, with wrestling um, in my junior year, that was when students traveled unaccompanied. And I was at Westchester over the Christmas break with wrestlers who were all cutting weight and who could get really mean when they don't eat. Um, and I actually lived in the house with the guys because there was nowhere else to be. Um, and we traveled to Lockhaven and I still, um, remember that because two different things happened during that event. One was we were traveling by van from Westchester to Lockhaven, and we had two guys that were still not making weight. So coach turned the heat up in the van and made everybody put on extra clothing and everything you're not supposed to do happened right. that day. Um, he had a scale that we got to the bottom of the hill going up to Lockhaven, and he put the scale next to the van and weighed those two guys they were still a quarter of a pound over, so they were uh, spitting in the cups and that still didn't work. And then he made them run after yeah. and all the way up the hill to Lockhaven. Um, so by the time we got there, I now realized that everything I was taught was now being violated. And I got on the payphone with my dime at the time and called back to Westchester to Phil Donnelly and said, Mr. Donnelly, Everything you told me they weren't supposed to do, they've just done. What do I do? He says, you know, you have to do your best and just make sure everybody comes back in one piece and is alive and we're all okay. So, you know, here I had all this other stuff going on. Um, I was the only woman in the gym at the time. And um, one of my athletes went down, so I went out on the mat to take care of him. And I had these people catcalling out of the uh, stand saying, Get that girl oh off my. there. You know, somebody's little girlfriend. She doesn't need to be out there on the mat. Um, so it was that kind of thing that um, was really difficult in the beginning because not only were you feeling that you needed to do a better job than everybody else, but you also had a lot of people not supportive. Um, you know, if we had an athlete go down, um, my two colleagues for football at Westchester were both, uh, they were junior women and then we had one senior male. Um, we had one of our athletes get a concussion and, and Joe Godak at the time was the head athletic trainer for football. He sent us to the showers um, with this athlete and said he needs to shower up before the doc sees him. And so here are two women taking a guy into the locker room. Um, you know, we gave him some privacy, but then we hear this collapse and no this, you know, 250 pound guy is on the coming? floor and he's all slippery and wet and naked. And yeah. We had to adjust and get him into a position where we could take care of him and get him dressed and, and coherent so that he could meet with the doc. So a lot of things were really kind of wild west at the time. Um, yeah. But I think it made us a lot stronger. It also made us realize that not only did we have to be better, um, we had to figure out ways to do things when we didn't have um, the best or the most or whatever. Um, we also went to Europe. I went to Europe with a team, uh, the lacrosse team, in my um, senior year. And I was in Europe by myself with women's lacrosse traveling all over Europe. And again, you know, I had an athlete get sick in London and trying to find a place to, to 
take care of uh, of her in the London subway um, was a really interesting go round because that was the only first aid station we had access to. Jeez. So oh, wow. It was very different so, back then. <laughs> so yeah, Paul, first of all, I'm, I'm a Lock Haven grad, so those hills are no joke. So that was, that's <laughs> legit. Um, you know, when, so that was the, that was the beginning of your career. Um, when do you feel like the, it became more normal for females to be in athletic training? When do you, did you see that transition to, you know, obviously things aren't perfect now even, but like, when did you start to see that? And, and what do you think maybe sparked the being more normal for, for females to be in athletic training? Um, well, I think I'm going to ask, answer the second part of your question first. I think probably what made things become more normal is when the men in leadership decided to support women and that there were very competent women who should be moving ahead in their careers. Um, you know, the three folks at Westchester, um, they were ahead of their time allowing women to do all the male sports as well as female sports. Um, at Michigan State, you know, Clint positioning me to be the head athletic trainer at a high school for football when no one else had ever done that was huge. Um, my first job out of, of grad school was with Bobby Barton when he was becoming president of the NATA. Um, and so Bobby was my advocate. He allowed that to happen. I would say it was the mid to late 80s that things really got to be a little bit more normal. Um, and seeing women in positions um, and good, competent women in those positions um, was really, uh, we started to see that more and more. But without the, the men who were in leadership at the time, truthfully, I'm not sure we would have gotten the shot. Um, but I also think that the women at the time, we stood up for ourselves. Yep. And um, I always tease Bobby now, Bobby Barton, because I was a pain for him sometimes because I wanted to do it the best we could do it. And, you know, we had a lot of uh, balls in the air. We were juggling an awful lot of things because he was running, you know, he was running the NATA um, and we didn't have the big support staff that we do today. So yeah. it forced us to do a lot of things. Um, but I think that showing our competence, standing up for ourselves and having advocates were the way to go. And I think that same principle holds true um, for any athletic trainer today, you have to yeah. show your confidence, you have to stand up for yourself, and you have to know what you can contribute back. So I think all of that plays a role. Brilliant. Definitely. Yeah. So speaking about today, uh, what are you currently doing now? What do you do nowadays? Um, well, I do run the pre-medical and health professions programs. So my job is to help people who are planning to go to med school, dental school, vet school, PA school, um, to get ready. Um, I also teach them. So I'm showing okay. them athletic training from day one and I, they know I'm an athletic trainer. So I'm educating them on uh, what we do, but I'm also giving them some preparation and moving forward because frankly, the preparation is the same as we do with our students. Okay. Um, in training. Um, the other thing though, I work clinically. Um, I volunteer one day a week or one afternoon a week at the Washington City Mission in Washington, Pennsylvania. Uh, where I work as part of an interdisciplinary team providing care for homeless individuals who live in the mission. Um, it's a rehabilitation mission where they do, uh, um, they teach them how to get back to work, how to find jobs, etc. cetera. Um, but most of them are recovering addicts 
And if they have pain and they are recovering addicts, you can't give them medicine. So my job, I'm doing primarily uh, manual therapy. I'm doing most of the orthopedic evaluations. I'm assigning exercises and stretching programs, but mostly what I'm doing is manual therapy and I'm doing position release therapy, which I find very effective. Um, and we're actually getting ready to do a study with our outcomes for the past year because we've been doing it since last October um, and having great success. Um, and it, you can imagine, um, We've got women and children, we've got men, and we've got vets. And a lot of our vets have PTSD in addition to pain. So managing their care is really, really important. So I'm working as an athletic trainer with nurses, uh, PT, and I have a physician supervisor who is not on site. So I work under standing orders um, under the physician's direction that way. Um, it's been really, interesting and very challenging to work with a population of people I've never worked with before who have been on the street, many of them for years, and they come in with great debilitation. Um, their injuries and their problems are magnified by motor vehicle accidents, gunshot wounds, um, being beat up, um, all kinds of things that homeless people experience, but now they have pain and they have chronic pain. Um, and our job is to get them so that they are pain-free ideally, or at least reduced pain so they don't go back to abusing opioids and heroin and other um, illegal and illicit uh, substances, um, because that's really um, a problem in that population. So you're bringing the, you're almost bringing the athletic training team model to general health care. And I know in previous conversations, you're getting fantastic results with that. Um, one of my backgrounds that I've done, um, I've done a little bit of traditional Chinese medicine. And I saw on your CV that you actually did a PRT presentation to Shanghai University. How, how do you feel PRT, the integration of a little bit of TCM is helping with your patient outcomes? Well, I think that um, traditional Chinese medicine and manual therapy, and actually what we do as athletic trainers is we treat the whole person. Um, we don't look at them as a knee or an ankle or whatever. Um, if I'm treating someone, I'm treating their condition, of course, but I'm also looking at their posture. I, I don't do any evaluation without doing a posture screen because frankly, posture affects so many things orthopedically. Um, I also look at nutrition. You know, one of my specialty areas is nutrition and weight management. Um, you know, having been an author, the lead author on the position state, the NATA position statement. Um, I think that's really important. If if they're not taking in proper hydration or they're not eating balanced meals, um, it can affect the quality of their recovery and their overall health. So I think the holistic approach of traditional Chinese medicine makes the um, it, it fits well with athletic training and it fits well with manual therapy. That's awesome. So for, that's, that's... for the listeners, um, could you just describe the, the manual therapy that you're, you're talking about, um, the, the PRT? Um, you know, I, I think that I've taken a, one course um, a, as well, so I'm a little familiar with it. But um, for the listeners, can you just kind of describe that and what that, what that um, technique looks like? Sure. So PRT, positional release therapy, is very similar to strain counter strain, which is what the DOs use. Um, and it's a therapy where 
you identify uh, tender points that may or may not be associated with the, the problem itself. So for example, when I see someone with low back pain today, I'll identify tender points around the area where their pain is in their back, but there are also tender points that I'll find on the anterior portion of their body um, in, in their iliopsoas and in um, their hip flexors in general. Um, I might find it in their glutes. And so I will treat those tender points by identifying them, holding that position and then shortening that area so that the muscle basically resets itself um, if it's over a joint, the same thing occurs. You don't get the same uh, dynamic response. But what the patient will feel is usually a tapping or a tingling or it, it, it all of a sudden the pain that they were experiencing goes away. And it's so cool when you're doing it over a muscle because all of a sudden you'll feel it and it'll be tapping. All of a sudden it stops and you get the, and the muscle yeah. just fully relaxes and you return them carefully to their resting position and the pain is gone you recheck yeah. the point. So I can tell you, it is probably one of the best tools. I've always done manual technique because I was trained by DOs when I was at Michigan State to do those different techniques of mobilization and manipulations of different kinds. But this just adds a whole nother layer of really non-intrusive and non, um, non-violent, if you will. Yeah. Uh, they, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm familiar with like ART techniques as well. And a lot of those are very painful, whereas the PRT seems to be, like you said, less aggressive, less painful. Um, and, you know, if a person's already in pain, do we really want to put them in more pain? I, you know, I don't think that's a great idea. Sometimes yeah. it can be successful, obviously, but um, yeah, I've, I've found some good success with that technique as well. Um, could you just maybe talk a little bit more about the, you know, so that's part of your treatment. Like, do you follow that up with anything specific? You know, is that like something you do at the beginning and then go on exercise? Do you do exercise first? You know, um, how does that fit into your treatment process? Right. So it's kind of like a mash unit. So we have four stations within our, in our clinic progression. We usually start them out with traditional PT if our, our PT is available that day. And, and he's there about 50% of the time. So he'll start with traditional stretching or traditional exercises um, after we've done the initial eval, et cetera. And then they'll come to either me or my partner, who is a, um, a nurse practitioner who does um, Alpha Stim, which is, um, there's mixed reviews on Alpha Stim. It's a, it's a different form of Stim that um, physiologically, I'm not sure I buy into 100%, but our patients seem to like it. Feel good stuff. Come to yep. me or the, the um, Alpha Stim. And then we have prayer as our fourth component. Okay. Uh, because again, treating the whole person. Yeah. Um, so, if I'm there and the PT is not there, um, oftentimes I will do whatever, um, whatever treatment is indicated. So I'll assess where they are that day. I do a pain assessment and a screening technique, um, determine if we're dealing with the same thing or a different problem or a related problem. And then I just uh, develop the plan based upon that. Some people I, saw, I have seen for up to a year. Um, some people, uh, they come in off the street. Um, I had one gentleman who, was homeless for a lot of years and he had frostbite in his feet. He lost several toes um, and he had a lot of uh, neuropathy um, in his feet and the PRT really helped him a great deal. Um, he, I saw him for two or three sessions. Actually, I saw him for about two months and then he ended up um, relapsing and going back to his, um, his opioid addiction and ended out on the street again. Um, and then he reappeared in a month um, much skinnier and much uh, more in pain than when he left us. So I had to start that again. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so it just, it depends. It's a different population. So the traditional model that we use in athletic training sometimes works because I have a lot of young guys right now who are between the ages of 18 and 24. So it's like treating an athlete in a college setting. But I also have an 84-year-old um, army vet who lived in his car after his uh, partner that he lived with in a, in a house um, got sent to a nursing facility and he got booted out and was living in his car. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, working with him after living, sleeping in a car for, you know, a month and a half was a big deal. Yeah. Um, so what I do changes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You're seeing the whole scope of, of age and, and injuries. And yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah, that's, it's really cool. Yeah, for sure. Talk about, um, Duquesne knowledge for the mind, heart and spirit. And that's essentially what you're doing now is you're treating the mind, the heart and the, uh, and the soul down at the clinic. That's, uh, kind of big full circle. That's really cool. It is. It's, it's probably one of the most fun things I've done in a long time. Yeah. That's awesome. Paula, what's your favorite part of what you do? Um, I like everything. Um, clinically, I think it's interacting with um, a whole lot of different patients and having that opportunity to be able to use my common sense as well as my experience and do what I think is right for my patients. Um, I think in my job, my real job at Duquesne, um, I think I really enjoy influencing healthcare and the idea of interdisciplinary healthcare um, okay. from day one of my students' education so that when they get out there and they are the team physicians and the people that we work with are supervising physicians and um, the dentists we interact with and the podiatrists, they are going to have a better appreciation for what we do. So with your, with your uh, position at Duquesne now, is it more of a mentor position with your students or are you um, doing more classroom? Is it more kind of guiding them through the, the jungle of pre-med? Um, how's, um, how's that work? Yes, <laughs> it's all of those things. Okay. So, um, we, we created, when I took this job over four years ago, four and a half years ago, we created a model that doesn't exist anywhere else in the United States. We advise um, students on, of course, their coursework they need to go to medical school or dental school, etc. Um, we help them get ready and do all of their application steps, and there are many, many um, more than need to be steps to do most of the centralized applications now. Um, and then I actually created a curriculum for our students where they are in class with one another. So I have a pre-med and a pre-dent and a pre-vet sitting side by side in the classroom. And um, it's basically the, um, a lot of the intro stuff that our students in AT learn about. So um, because we want them to get out and shadow and be safe in those environments, they do HIPAA, OSHA, bloodborne pathogen training. Um, I teach them about the cardiorespiratory system, and then they learn about vitals and, and taking those vitals. Um, we are just starting gastrointestinal, and we'll tie that in with endocrine, and they're going to learn about taking blood sugar readings and why we do it and what it means. Um, where they learn gloving and sterile fields, so if they get a chance to observe surgery, they get to be safe. Um, in the second year, they do medical terminology. And again, this is one hour a week, zero credits. So... The whole um, the experience is they, we learn it by system of the body, um, and they learn the basics. So, oh, hi, little person. Um, yep. 
So, uh, yeah, so, and then in the third year, um, which is the earliest they can apply to professional school, they're going to, um, they're going to be doing um, application prep stuff and strategies and how do you study for a standardized test. So it has an awful lot of overlap with athletic training, um, but my job is to make them look at it holistically and to understand that um, every health professional in the room is going to have to have the same basic information. And it doesn't matter if they're going to vet school or dental school, the skill set is the same. They just happen to do it on smaller, smaller critters if they're doing vet school. Yeah. Math and science is math and science, right? Exactly. Um, do you get a lot of athletic trainers that um, do cross-platform, do athletic training and then come into pre-med yet? No, um, one or two a year. Okay. Um, it depends on the student. Um, I think, you know, athletic trainers um, really enjoy what they do, and it is a health field unto its own, much like, you know, PA or PT. Um, it's not, going to med school is not the only way you practice medicine. So um, knowing that up front is, is part of the deal. Um, so Paula, my next question was going to be, you know, what was one of the coolest experiences you've had as an athletic trainer? And you can answer that as you want, if you want, but I, I was going to pick for you instead and um, ask you about your experiences in the um, Pennsylvania Athletic Trainer Society and kind of getting the legislation um, kind of moving forward. Um, you know, as we talked about a little bit again offline, um, could you just tell us a little bit about your involvement in, in that process, what it looked like and, and what we were fighting for whenever you were there? So um, I started um, on the PATS board as the parliamentarian for a number of years. Um, and then I was elected president-elect, president and past president. So um, at that time, we were still under the State Board of Physical Therapy. Um, we had an advisory committee that had no vote, um, which wasn't sitting well with us. Um, so we had a couple of things we were working on simultaneously. So uh, one of the big things when um, John Hoth was the president before me and um, uh, Steve Heckler was the president after me, um, John's son was very ill, so I stepped in to do a little bit of work while I was president-elect, where our main objective was to make sure that the definition of the athlete and uh, was changed to physically active, and we were able to expand it so that we could work um, under a direct supervision of a physician with either standing orders or with a prescription was a huge, if we were in the non-traditional setting, which was a huge advance for us. Um, so... Can you, can you explain what, what, was, what was it before that? Like, what was that scene like? So the, the legislation um, at that time was uh, defining an athlete as someone who was on a team, um, who had a pre-participation physical. I mean, it was a traditional yeah. explanation of an athlete, which didn't let us take care of recreational people. That didn't allow us to use the full scope of all of oh, wow. our um, experiences, particularly in a clinic or a private um, setting. Um, so the clinic was just starting to take off in the late 70s and early 80s. Yep. So I had experienced all that. Um, and when I was at Michigan State, I worked in a sports medicine clinic, which was one of the first athletic training places where athletic trainers were in the in a clinic. Yep. Um, so it was really important that we were able to allow all athletic trainers, no matter the practice setting, practice to the full scope of their abilities. So we were really fighting to get that definition changed and to work the way we were actually working. Because in a traditional environment, having a team physician is awesome. 
but a lot of athletic trainers weren't working in that environment. Mm -hmm. So having a supervising physician who would trust you enough to give you standing orders or would work from a script, you were allowed to do so much more of what you were trained and educated to do. So part of my work at that time um, was to go in front of the Senate hearings and, and uh, defend athletic training, um, numerous uh, discussions with the different health professions and getting people to buy in. Um, under my presidency, uh, Pats, um, we started having our first legislative interactions in Harrisburg. We had never been to Harrisburg by ourselves um, before. So we started hosting events and yeah. we started educating legislators. And so it was a really fun time. Um, a lot of work and a lot of battles we fought. Um, yeah. I have stars that I won't show you, but um, yeah, you know, in a school of health sciences with my dean at the time was, is, was a PT. He still is a PT, he's retired of course. Um, but that was very difficult because I almost lost my job twice um, because I was fighting them, uh, them being the PTs at the time because they weren't allowing us to do our jobs and our and educate and let us be educated. We also at the time were required to have PTs teach our therapeutic modalities and therapeutic exercise courses for so many hours per semester because we number one weren't allowed to because we couldn't possibly know it as well. And two, we were actually getting more hours of classroom time and laboratory time than the PTs were having to get. So we got that removed, that, that requirement removed from the law. Yeah. We had a lot of things that we were fighting for at the same time. And Steve Heckler, as president-elect at the time, he started then the push for us to go for licensure and to go under the med board. So we were working two ends of the, the spectrum at the same time, which caused us to have to really um, know our know our talking points and talk to the as many people as we can do a lot of education um, we started to bring in professional athletes to speak in front of legislators because that got their yep. attention a little bit better yeah um, we, it was first time we hired a, a lobbyist uh, for Pats but at that point we had no executive director we were all doing all this stuff while we had real jobs and families yeah, no, I, I, I think that's just so impactful. And, and I don't think a lot of today's generation quite understand where we were. Um, you know, I think that that is a, a really big um, piece of our history that, that needs to be talked about a little bit more frequently to, yeah. to really make sure that we understand that, that we've gone through that fight. Um, and, and that's how we got where we are. Obviously, we're still pushing forward and still need to make, you know, more, more changes on that level. But, you know, to know where we were, I think is really valuable. So thank you for sharing that. Paul, what was the coolest? Oh, sorry, go, yeah. go for it. Yeah, so the coolest part was at the beginning question. Yep. What's the yeah. coolest thing you've gotten to do or the coolest experience you've been afforded as an athletic trainer? Um, there's been so many of them. Um, <laughs> obviously, the, the high school um, state championship where I was the, the first woman doing that, that was really cool. Um, I got to work with the Olympics. Um, I went to the World University Games with the U.S. Um, men's and women's volleyball teams. And we went to Zagreb, Yugoslavia, um, oh. which uh, was really interesting because when you went into the Olympic Village and it was just like the Olympics, you had to have a pass and had to be screened every time. Um, there were barbed wire fences on top of all the buildings and guys with Uzis um, that guarded the Olympic Village because it wasn't 
that long ago before that, that we had the, the awful takeover um, of the Olympic Village. Um, so it was, um, it was really exciting. And I had the coolest athletes to work with. Um, a lot of them um, were collegiate players. Um, Karch Karai was a player at the time, um, if you're looking for a name. Um, and so our athletes were from Hawaii and California and a lot of West Coast people, a couple East Coast people. They were so much fun. You know, we got stuck in D.C. when we were getting ready to go abroad and they turned, out, turned on some music and did some um, aerobic, you know, some fun things out in the, in the airport out on the tarmac, you know, so <laughs> a lot of really, really, really fun things. You know, working Special Olympics for the first time and getting involved with Linda Meyer as she started that program here in Western Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, made some lifelong friends besides Loretta Claiborne and, um, and some others. You know, Cece Wagner is one of my favorite Special Olympians. Um, we got to do things that no one else did and with a population that people didn't think about before. So I've had a lot of really cool, cool jobs, you know. Um, Eastern Kentucky was, wasn't so much with the athletes. I didn't really enjoy that, but I got to work with the president of the NATA and talk with Otho Davis every morning at 6.30 in the morning while we're doing morning treatments. So, you know, every place has been really exciting. That's uh, awesome. That's, yeah, that's a perfect segue into the next question. Um, sounds like you've done a lot and you've seen a lot, which is awesome. You know, how, how has your career evolved over the years? And for maybe a young professional who would like to get into any of these endeavors that you've talked about, you know, do you have any advice for them um, to, to kind of mimic your, your career path? Um, well, I wouldn't recommend anybody mimic it. <laughs> um, but I do think that um, the first step in all of it is for them to recognize what their skill set is. Um, what do they do well? What do they need to refine a little bit more and work on those things? Um, I think that investigating thoroughly the different opportunities, but not being, uh, not being afraid to know your skill set, know what athletic trainers can do by the law, and then do it. Um, and if you're not being permitted to do it or you see an opportunity that doesn't exist, like this thing that happened with the clinic, Yep. then figure out, can you do it legally? Do you have the education <laughs> to do it safely and effectively? And then position yourself to do it. Um, I'll give you a, an example that's not clinical, but it's related. Um, when I took the job at Duquesne, um, our AT program was just a program under the Department of Physical Therapy. Um, when I took it and I interviewed with our, our dean at the time, who is a PT, I said, why would you hire me? I'm probably the last person you want to hire um, because I know that you don't like, at the time I said, you don't like athletic trainers. And he says, no, I, I respect them, but you will be under the department of PT. I said, is that firm? And he said, of course. Well, my thing was, I was only going to take it for a year if I couldn't change it. I went in with the idea that I was going to change it. And after six months of fighting and figuring out how to position ourselves, we became our own department in the school with equal footing that the PT had and every other department had. So my theory is if you do your homework and you position yourself correctly and you start to figure out the game, you can figure out how to win the game, but you have to really pay attention. Yeah. yeah to be I a think fly on the wall during that conversation. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the you, as unfortunate as it is, you do need to play the game, and it is a game, yep. right? Um, and you have to you have to figure out the rules early, um, and then sometimes when you know the rules, you can break the rules too. So, um, yeah, I think that that was that was brilliant. Thank you. Um, can I just add to that too? I mean, Absolutely. I think Please. your summary was very appropriate. I also think though it's it's about um, understanding that you need to use information to your advantage. Um, one of the things I do and I continue to do because the same thing happened when I took the job with pre-med. It was a part-time position I was splitting and I realized it needed full-time attention. So I started doing outcome measurements. I started to demonstrate our value and put it in quantifications that higher level administration could understand. So I also had to think like they think and figure out what's important to them. And then basically just say the facts. I'm not making anything up. I'm just pulling the data and the facts to support what I want to have happen. And it yep. works. <laughs> it does. Yep. But you have to put the work in. It's nobody's going to hand it to you. You have to put the work in. Correct. Uh, right. Me, Adam. Yeah, go for it. Am I cool? Uh, so we're going to move into the lightning round. Quick questions that sometimes involve really in-depth answers as we've been finding out. But uh, what is your dream job? Whatever job I'm in right now. There you go. I like Perfect. it. So outside of athletic training, what do you do for fun? Um, well, I'm a, a stepmother of three and a grandmother of four. Um, so I have one uh, grandson who plays uh, college hockey at Hamilton College in New York and a granddaughter who's getting ready to play soccer at Fordham next year as an in incoming freshman. I have two smaller grandchildren who are 10 and 8. So I'd like to spend time with them. Um, I like the outdoors. My husband and I love to uh, be outdoors, uh, kayaking, um, hiking, just having some fun time. Um, we also both like history, so I like to read a lot of uh, historically relevant novels. Nice. Um, I only get to read in the summertime. I can't read during the school year. It hurts my brain. <laughs> can imagine. <laughs> what inspires you? Um, whoever I'm working with inspires me a great deal. Um, I think um, my, um, my husband inspires me a great deal. Um, he is probably just as motivated as I am. Um, and I think that God and my, my desire to give back to my, my, the people who are around me, my, my world, um, and give it back to, um, wherever I am. I think that inspires me to achieve all of it. Okay. So you've, you've obviously had a, a, a very long, but successful career. Um, what does it mean to you? to be an athletic trainer. You've been a great advocate for us, obviously. What does that mean to you? Um, to be an athletic trainer is basically to know what my abilities are um, and to make whoever my patient is better. Um, if they leave me better than they came to me, then I've done my job. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Paula, you've been awesome to chat with. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your day um, and, and sharing your story with us.
where can viewers or listeners, uh, maybe if they have any more questions or want to know more about you or, or anything you've talked about today, um, any avenues that they can reach out to you and ask questions? Sure. Um, they are welcome to give me a, send me an email at Duquesne at TeroCP at DukeEDU. Uh, they also can uh, call the office where I am. It's uh, 412-396-6335. Um, or if you see me at a meeting, please just come up and introduce yourself. I, I'm always happy to meet new people. I'm terrible with names, so don't take it personally. Um, but I will remember your face. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again. And thank you to our viewers. Uh, thanks for listening. Let us know what you think of this format and topics that you might want to hear about in the future. Um, until next time, I'm Adam Richmond. And I'm Philip Pensler. And this was the Pat's Podcast. <laughs>